We come to it at last, friends. <laughs> we have finally arrived at the delivery portion of our work here together. We are at what I call the stand and deliver phase of giving a kick-ass talk. It's funny, most people think that the delivery portion of how we communicate is where I spend my majority of time with clients as a coach, but actually it's the portion that requires the least amount of my time if we've done the inner work of telling ourselves the right mental stories, right? Go to my earlier podcast, you'll know what I mean. And if we've done the work of really asking the right questions and mapping the right journey for the audience, which is what we've done the past few podcasts, when you do those things, 90% of the work is already done. Most of the weird tics or bad behaviors get resolved just by those two things. If the talk is right for the audience and the most authentic, wholehearted version of you is delivering the talk, you've got it made in the shade. All that's left is practicing and tweaking. So let's tweak. Let's talk delivery. And if we're going to talk delivery, we really have to talk ground zero, which is eye contact. When I say real eye contact, I mean that you look into the individual faces and into the eyes of people in your audience, whether it's an audience of three or 3,000. Even if it's 3,000 people and you can only see the first row or like the lights are so bright, but you can only see general faces, you can still, still make good eye contact. And why is this so important? It's important because people fundamentally want to be seen, valued, and appreciated. And maintaining healthy eye contact makes your audience feel seen, valued, and appreciated. It is absolutely possible to make eye contact with a massive audience. I mean, look at look at Oprah Winfrey or Rob Bell or Glennon Doyle or Bill Clinton or Tony Robbins or even Ronald Reagan. Not only is it possible to maintain eye contact with a big audience, it's necessary if you're hoping to connect and move people to see things in a different way. I know this to be true as a coach. I also know it to be true as an audience member. But I know this also to be true. The art and science of eye contact is mysterious and not a little bizarre. Make too much unbroken eye contact and you give off serial killer vibes. <laughs> not enough eye contact and you appear shifty or ill-prepared or socially awkward. And I found in my work that when there is an eye contact problem with a client, it's usually for a couple of reasons. Either the person, one, is telling themselves an I'm not safe story, one of those junk thoughts like... I'm not enough, I don't belong, all of those messages of superiority, inferiority, or us versus them, or scarcity, right? Usually, if one of those messages is pumping through your head, eye contact is the first place to suffer. Not always, but usually. Or another reason I see is that some of us just aren't wired to be particularly adept at making and maintaining appropriate eye contact. It could be because they were raised in a family that just really didn't do eye contact. It wasn't a thing. Or maybe they're on the spectrum. Or maybe culturally, eye contact is a different set of social norms than the culture I move in. So let's kind of dig into these. <laughs> eye contact killer number one, the sort of broken narrative version. Look, I get it. Looking into the eyes of strangers is daunting. In fact, a Japanese study found that maintaining eye contact impairs our ability to focus on a cognitive task. And giving a talk definitely qualifies as a cognitive task. But let's get a little bit more practical. Close your eyes 
right now and imagine a speaking opportunity that kind of freaks you out. Okay. Imagine in your head. I want you to imagine yourself walking to the microphone or podium. God forbid there's a podium. I hate podiums. That's a whole nother podcast for a different day. Imagine yourself getting to the microphone. Imagine your stomach nervous. Imagine all of the feels of terror and tension. Okay. Now, feel all those nerves and press pause. Pay attention to what mental stories you might be telling yourself. Maybe on some level you feel unworthy of the audience's attention. That's an inferiority story. Or maybe you don't feel like you belong. That's an us versus them story. Or maybe you're afraid you'll screw up and and mangle the words. A perfectionist story. Or maybe you feel like there's no way you'll cover the material you have in the short amount of time you've got. Scarcity. Or maybe you feel like you've been set up to fail because you're trapped up there and you don't know what you're about to say. A victim story. Okay, come back to me from that thought experiment. Comfortable, natural eye contact with an audience can only happen if we are telling ourselves we are safe, we are equal, we are in this together. The goal is connection, not perfection. There is enough. We always have choice. Decide in those moments when you get that panic attack, that nerve attack, decide what story needs to be told in your mind and use it as a mantra. The minute you feel yourself going down the rabbit hole of junk thoughts, pull yourself out. Repeat the mantra that you've decided you need. Because here's what I know for sure. Feeling safe is the only way to connect with an audience. And sometimes that feeling of safety has to be manufactured by pumping the right mantra through your mind, just as we talked about in the earlier podcasts. For me, the hardest part of eye contact with an audience is when I register a you suck message in the form of a facial grimace or some sort of nonverbal cue. That moment can be devastating if you don't have the tools to manage it. The fact is maintaining eye contact forces you to deal with uncomfortable information in how the audience is receiving your content. It can feel terrifying But I'm here to tell you that's the nature of authentic communication. It's interactive. It's a dance with the unknown. Only some of it is within your control, kind of like life itself. In fact, I go into great detail about what to do with a skeptic and a facial expression that's scary in the deep listening episodes earlier. So you can skip to that if that sounds like something you want to check out. But I like to compare delivering a talk and maintaining really good eye contact with skiing. When I go skiing, I have to stay absolutely present and focused when I'm going down a hard hill. I have to be ready to roll with whatever weird terrain issues are happening or like, you know, some newbie snowboarder that tries to collide with me accidentally. Navigating that weirdness and that sort of spontaneous decision-making and figuring out how to get to the bottom of the mountain with my limbs intact and with some modicum of like style or form is what makes skiing so fun, so enjoyable, so invigorating. It's that combination of skill, what little skill I have in skiing, plus the unknown, plus the challenging terrain. That's what makes it so interesting, so worthwhile. And I think that's the right attitude to have with public speaking. It requires all of you, all of me loves, sorry, (laughs) Sometimes I just have to sing. It just happens. Anyway, when you get up to speak, expect that there's going to be weirdness and some bumps along the way, but also know that you have skills 
And that if you can dance between the spontaneity of rolling with what comes at you with a reliance on your own skills, the experience becomes flow and it becomes fabulous. One of my favorite examples of maintaining eye contact with an audience is when Liz Gilbert gave her TED Talk, Success, Failure, and the Drive to Keep Creating. I mean, I love, if you don't know this about me by now, I love Elizabeth Gilbert. I think she's a frigging genius. But if you watch it, you will notice how warm her eye contact is with that very large room. Even though it looks, it looks cozy, there's a lot of people in that room. And she stays connected to that audience, even when they don't laugh at her jokes. I mean, it's almost like you can see her sort of mentally recommitting to her talk, staying steady, despite the apparent sort of lack of reception for her, you know, corgi jokes. <laughs> she, she makes a few corgi jokes. People just aren't feeling it. But she keeps going because she's cracking herself up. And who among us hasn't been there when a joke has fallen flat? I mean, it's the most common experience ever, Right. But if you watch that seven-minute talk through to the end, you will see that while Gilbert's audience didn't chuckle at every joke she gave, she got a standing ovation. A standing ovation. I remember one time I was giving a talk at a tech company, and there was this like millennial, this surly millennial in the front row, and he was not having any of it. He had the worst expression on his face the whole time. And one time I checked in and was like, you know, you, you all right? You, you look like you're having a reaction. He looked completely shocked and was like, no, 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 keep going. I'm sorry. You know, why are you picking on me? And I moved on and I didn't let it bother me the rest of the time. After I give a talk, there's generally like a, a little line of people that want to, you know, chat with me afterwards and connect. And I love that. That's my favorite part of speaking. This guy gets in line, this surly millennial. And I'm thinking to myself, oh God, I wonder what he's going to say. Like, I wonder what he took exception to. And I was kind of mentally girding my loins a little bit, if I'm being honest. And he came up to me and he was like, that's one of the best talks I've heard in a long time. Thank you so much. And I sat to him, I said, did you actually know that the reason I checked in with you is that you looked like you hated what I was saying? And his response was kind of like, that's, I mean, he didn't say these words, but he was kind of like, that's my resting bitch face. Like, that's what I look like when I'm listening. (laughs) I mean, it was amazing. And it was such a great learning opportunity that if you've done the work, you've planned the greatest content you can plan, you've done all the inner work, sometimes all you can do is commit and just go for it. Even when the audience is like, yeah, because you never know, they may give you a freaking standing ovation. So if eye contact is a challenge for you because of the negative thought patterns, try your new mantras, replace them with positive or at least neutral thoughts, as we talked about in the earlier podcasts, and begin to choose small, low-risk scenarios to practice maintaining appropriate eye contact. And as you practice, notice when you feel uncomfortable or scared. Notice what mental story is playing in your mind. One of the greatest things we can do when we feel ourselves getting triggered is just press the pause button and ask ourselves, wait a minute, what thoughts are responsible for this triggering? What stories am I telling myself? This is just like any other muscle. The more you work it, the stronger it gets, okay? So that's some thoughts about if you have trouble with eye contact because of a negative mental story. But let's talk about the second one. What if you're just wired differently or you didn't grow up in an environment where eye contact was a thing? Listen, not everybody is wired with that ability to make eye contact easily and effectively 
You might fall into the I'm wired differently camp if your questions about eye contact sound something like this. Yes, but how long do I make eye contact for? How many blinks before it becomes weird? Where do I look? The mouth? The eyes? Always the eyes? Question mark. <laughs> These questions are good questions and have been the subject of research for many years. So let's start with the issue of length of gaze, as I think this is the most important question of the bunch if you struggle with eye contact. Look too long and people feel like you're a sociopath. Look too short and they think you're not confident or trustworthy. It's tricky. No wonder this issue causes so many of us to panic. It's a fine line we have to walk. In fact, a 2013 study by doctors Chen, Minson, Scone, and Heinrichs found that too much eye contact can actually turn off a listener, possibly, in my opinion, because it makes a listener feel manipulated or overpowered. But how much is too much? Another study published in 2016 in the Royal Society of Open Science concluded neatly for us that 3.3 seconds is the sweet spot for effective, high-quality eye contact. I got to tell you, I think I agree with that. I mean, the longest I allow my gaze to settle on one set of eyeballs is generally about three eye blinks, I would say. And the same applies for one-on-one -on -one conversations. Sometimes longer than that just feels like it's too much. It took a lot of practice to allow a full three-second eye contact with a person in a large audience for me, that was, that was some next level stuff. And it took me some time to get to that point where I could make a very large room feel like a very small room because that's how you do it. You make eye contact with people as if you're just, you know, hanging out together at a, you know, dinner. That took me some time and some practice. So give yourself permission to practice this in low risk situations. Like give yourself permission to start small and build. This is hard. This is hard. And in terms of where to make eye contact, it's always the eyes. I know this sounds obvious, but many people I've worked with have thought that by looking at someone's mouth, for example, they're maintaining eye contact. I know this sounds shocking, but it's true. And if this is your habit, don't freak out. It's okay. I see it all the time and it is fixable, but it requires practice and a whole lot of rewiring of your brain to look into someone's eyes, which can feel really overwhelming. Taking in all of the information that an eye gaze transmits is overwhelming sometimes. So practice in small doses. What I find also is that when I feel overwhelmed by what I'm reading in someone else's eyes, that's when I really, really, really rely on my breath because your breath allows you to stay out of that dangerous limbic reaction of fight, flight, or freeze where you lose access to your thinking mind. So breathe. Remember, it's just information. It's just information. It doesn't need to affect you emotionally. Breathe. So practice in small doses with safe people, and eventually it will become second nature, or at least it will get easier. So let's talk about body language for a second. We've talked about eye contact. Let's talk about body language. There are two quotes I want to read you right now. The first is, the body never lies, Martha Graham. Second quote, fake it till you become it, Amy Cuddy. Now these two quotes seem to be completely contradictory, right? If the body never lies, as modern dance icon Martha Graham suggests, then all of the faking in the world won't help you become it as social scientist author Amy Cuddy suggests. Yet, 
for me as a communication coach, I can tell you that both are simultaneously and completely true. How can this be? Well, it depends on which version of you we are talking here. If little you is in charge, that scared small part of you, your body will act accordingly and bad habits will ensue. You might fidget or get weak in the knees. Your voice might tremble. Don't worry, we'll talk about voice in a second. Your palms might sweat. Your mouth gets dry. You might pace. The body never lies. But if big you is in charge, that part of yourself that is grounded, connected to a larger purpose, a larger sense of devotion to the audience. If big you is in charge, your body expresses the authenticity and intention of what you're trying to communicate. And it does it with heart, courage, humor, and you connect with that audience like crazy. But here's the thing, few among us are able to just snap our fingers and get big us launched out front and center once it's time to speak. And I'm no exception. There is a kind of handoff that has to happen between little you and big you. And this handoff can leave residual traces of little you, quivering voice, parched mouth, until big you finally kicks in and rocks it. This is why for a lot of us, our nerves eventually do settle down as we get into the groove of presenting. I hear this all the time. In fact, I know it's true for me. The first few seconds, little you is totally still running the game because I can feel my mouth dry. But once I get into the groove, big me little me, big me, kicks in and I rock it out. This handoff is key and must be manufactured and conjured into being regardless of how high stakes the situation is or how terrifying the audience seems. You have the power to pass the mic from little you to your powerful, magnificent, authentic big you. And much of that work is done way ahead of time in the processes we've talked about. But when the moment to shine finally presents itself and we approach the stage, the microphone, or raise our hands to speak, that little self immediately wants to jump up and grab that mic. It's just old habit. And frankly, little you is trying to protect you from what it is convinced is a life or death matter. (laughs) But you know better, of course, than to see a speaking opportunity as a true life and death situation. So in that split second, you make the handoff to big you. How? Posture, body language. Amy Cuddy's book, Presence, goes deep into this issue. It's so good. Amy Cuddy's wonderful. And she's got a lot of flack lately for the fact that her research was flawed. Don't believe the hype. She breaks down exactly where that criticism has come from. You should go to her Instagram. She breaks it all down where that criticism was coming from and the fact that it was based on a flawed attempt to replicate her research. So don't believe the hype. Amy is the real deal. Her research is real. Anyway, that's that's like a side note. I'll put it in the newsletter, like the rebuttal, so you can see for yourself. Anyway, Amy Cuddy's book, Presence, goes deep into the postures and practices that help this handoff process. In fact, she's got a TED Talk called Your Body Language May Shape Who You Are that is fantastic and a quick dose of information about postures that help. And she describes how poses like Wonder Woman literally change your brain chemistry in ways that I think make handing the mic off to big you so much easier. So when I am sweating it, I always get the most nervous when they're announcing me, when they're doing my, you know, my bio or they're introducing me. That's when I start to get really nervous. And as a result, my go-to pose is Wonder Woman. That's hands in a fist, your fists on your hips. 
taking up as much space as you can, right? And when I do that, big me shows up. Here's the thing, you guys, big you is always looking for opportunities to step in, but it has a hard time getting there if little you has you in fetal position psychologically. Your shoulders are hunched or rolled inward. If you strike a power pose, big you rushes in to fill it up. I don't know why this is true, you guys, but it just is. I've seen it thousands of times in my clients, and I've seen it in myself. It's magic. When it comes to which poses are best, I don't like being too prescriptive. I mean, listen, there are people, there are coaches that do what I do that say you should stay rooted in one place. You should have your feet on the ground, and you should stay where you are. Other people are like, oh, no, no, you should choreograph it. And like you make one point on stage right and another point stage left, and it should be choreographed. You know, I I don't like to be that prescriptive because I feel like the body knows what to do if it's big you. And I think you have to experiment and figure out what appeals to you. Study the people you admire who really resonate for you that you relate to. How do they use their body to signal strength or confidence or ease or humor and self-deprecation, the good kind? Try finding video clips of those people and turn the volume off so that you can only see posture. In fact, if you ever get the chance to record yourself, whenever I record clients, I make them watch the video with the sound on once and then once with the sound off so that they can pay absolutely close attention to what information their bodies are projecting. And I'm going to have to wrap up this stand and deliver. It turns out is going to be two episodes because we're already like well past our time limit. But here's what I want you to know about standing and delivering. We've talked about eye contact. We've talked about body language, but really what this whole thing is, is an energy game. It's all about energy. People feel your energy before you ever open your mouth. The way you walk in a room, the way you choose to take up space or shrink, all of these things are sending energetic signals to the audience. And body posture and eye contact are the two most tangible, visible ways to measure what kind of energy imprint you are making in a room. It may sound new agey and out there, but I swear to God, y'all, it's the truth. And in the next episode, We will talk about how to imprint the highest form of energy, the highest expression of big you in a room, in an opportunity. And we'll get there next time. In the meantime, shine on you crazy diamonds.